Amen. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Habakkuk. We're back in that tiny little book at the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk. And we're going to be in chapter 2 this evening. Chapter 2. Now, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to begin here with reading the entirety of chapter 2. I think, I hope I should say, that uh, getting a bigger picture here, a broader vision of what is laid out here in chapter 2 will help us as we unfold it. So, I'll be reading along here in chapter 2 of Habakkuk. Habakkuk begins by saying, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow... Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith, by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he, is ne- he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be the spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city of iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of the man and violence to the earth, to cities, all who dwell in them, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him 
who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's bow and ask God for his grace on our time this evening. Father, come before you again with a, with a desire, a heart to learn. I pray that you would grant grace to us, ears to hear and understanding here in this study. We'll do on Habakkuk. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for those of you who were with us a couple, uh, pardon me, last Sunday night, you'll remember we left Habakkuk. There in chapter 2, verse 1, looking to see what God would say in response to his second complaint. Okay? Waiting to discover the answer that God would provide. What we did last week is we began by noticing that Habakkuk had been overwhelmed, frustrated by the problem of the moral and spiritual decline, deterioration of God's people. They were indulging in exactly what God had opposed them to, what he was opposed to. And Habakkuk had approached God and asked him, lamented, and said, how long, God, are you going to tolerate this? Wondering how long it would last. We saw beginning of verse 5 of chapter 1 that God gave him a gracious response. He heard his servant Habakkuk, and this response was that he was about to do something that would astound Habakkuk, and not just Habakkuk, but all those who would hear, and they simply would have a hard time believing what they were seeing, and what they were hearing. The answer given by God is that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, would be raised up by God to take care of the injustice, the oppression, and the overall lack of regard for what God had said, specifically his law. But it turns out that this response by God isn't a terrific help to Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk couldn't handle the idea of God choosing to use a really bad nation to deal with the problem of a rather bad people. And as he hears God's response and then works out his complaint through the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, here into the beginning of chapter 2, what he's really asking God and what he's really saying is this, is there going to be any end to the oppression and rebellion, God? And now, God, now that you've provided that answer, will you also take care of the Babylonians, these wicked people who are coming to take care of your children? And that's where we ended last time, right here in chapter 2, verse 1, with Habakkuk waiting. Now, by this point, Habakkuk is finding this issue in his life to be oppressive, quite oppressive. And, And in that respect, he's a lot like the psalmist in Psalm 73, who, when confronted by the same kind of issues, responds similarly only with a different expression of these thoughts. Here's what he says in Psalm 73. He says, I had almost lost my place in the living of life. My feet had almost gone out from me, under me, because I envied the arrogant. And when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and I saw that the wicked people could continue being wicked and prosper at the same time, I just couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't understand why it would be that God would tolerate such a thing and why he would not intervene. And towards the end of that same psalm, he recounts the mighty works, the supreme character of God, and he retells 
of God's continual presence and strength in time of need. And then he also, at the very end, he, he mentions that while all others forsook him, God remained. God had remained. He had been his portion. And he, he closes out the psalm by saying, God, it was good for me to be near you, to hear from you. I found refuge here, is what he says. And then he concludes, he says, now I'm going to go and tell everyone about what you've done and what you will do. And as we continue throughout this chapter, chapter 2 and then hopefully, Lord willing, chapter 3, we'll find that Habakkuk's response to God's sovereignty and God's plan is very similar to the psalmist in Psalm 73. Which leads us to God's second divine response to Habakkuk. The first one we found in chapter 1, the second one beginning here in verse 2, where the second lament from Habakkuk leads us to the second divine response from God. How long Habakkuk waited between verse 1 and verse 2, we truly don't know. We don't know if it was a week, a day, if it was an immediate response, but I'm sure whatever time it took to get the response was simply agonizing because it says there the prophet literally put everything else on hold and stationed himself in waiting until God brought the answer. But as we see God's answer, let us be reminded again of this, that God's response is not based on our terms, but on his terms. He does not respond according to human time, human timetables, but rather his sovereign, perfect schedule. You and I may be used to quick response times in our culture, right? Anybody use a microwave today? Anybody? Two of you? Uh, that surprises me. Okay. My, uh, my firstborn has become infatuated with the microwave. Um, she loves the idea of being able to control and input numbers and watch it go down. And I think we're at the stage where we can trust her to, to heat things up without exploding the house. But... She's used to now being able to punch in numbers and watch it instantaneously go from cold to hot. You can pull out your phone and very quickly have an immediate response from someone else if they're paying attention, right? If their phone is with them. You and I are used to, in our modern world, having response times that are quick. But this is not often the way our God works. God requires faith and patience as we walk with him. The truth is here that there are very few instant solutions to the challenging realities of our day. Very few. So, like the prophet, you and I must learn to exercise patient trust in waiting for the Lord to give the answer to whatever it is we are going to him for. And I, friends, I think you will find, in fact, I know you will find, that God's answer in his perfect timetable is always worth the wait. Always. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Listen how he concludes his, his phrase. He says, Blessed, happy are those are all those who wait for him. Notice next, though, God's response. 
Beginning there, verse 2, he says, Then the Lord responded and replied, Write down my answer large and clear so that all can read it and run to tell others. What is Habakkuk writing down? Well, he's not writing down what is passing through his mind. Right? No, the role of the prophet here is not to say whatever comes to his imagination, but the role of the prophet is to declare the revelation of God. And the prophets were given very direct revelation in order that they would speak in a straightforward, a direct manner into their time, into their day, to the people. And perhaps even often not understanding the true nature of what they were actually prophesying. Which actually could be the case here with Habakkuk, not knowing the end of it all. But what we'll see is that this revelation, which is the answer to Habakkuk's questions, his laments, is marked by some fascinating things. First, he says, write down the revelation, make it plain and simple, so that anyone can run here and read it. For the revelation, first, is what? It awaits its appointed time. It awaits its appointed time. Now, from Habakkuk's viewpoint, okay, put, put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes. Everything in his life was just going like usual. From his perspective, it just seems as though Israel's history is continuing in its cyclical, round-by-round manner. That the promise given to generations past, the promise fulfilled had not found its way into the never-ending cycle that is Judah's history. He's watching generation by generation spin its wheels, knowing the promise of God, wayward in their ways, and continuing in the cycle, waiting for God to do something. But God says, no, he says, no, Habakkuk, write this down. Write it down clear. What I'm doing has an appointed time. I haven't revealed the time to you, but I know what the time is. Trust me. Await the appointed time. The second thing we see here is that the answer by God speaks or testifies. It bears witness to what? To the end. Now, just by the nature of, of history and, and, and Bible knowledge, we know that the appointed end for these people, the Babylonians, the people that Habakkuk is asking God to do something about, are you going to do something about the Babylonians? We know that their appointed end was in 539 B.C. when God would raise up the Persians to come in and give the Babylonians, if you will, a little bit of their own medicine that they had given to many people before. But notice also, this promise is accompanied by a further guarantee, and this guarantee is this, that it will not lie, or it will not prove false. There is a stamp of guaranteed approval by God. And though for for Habakkuk, and maybe those who are hearing Habakkuk through this prophecy, it's apparently lingering, right? It seems like it will never come Yahweh says, wait for it. Wait. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
And then we see in verses 4 and verse 5, Habakkuk contrasts here a righteous life, a life lived by faith, with the proud boasts and the lifestyle of those who are puffed up. Another way of seeing this is, in the original expression, the sense of being swollen. The idea of being badly swollen with presumption. And in the context here of this chapter, we actually see this played out in the lives of of the Babylonian people, right? God describes them as being, he says, a law unto themselves, a culture that promotes its own honor, and and a people whose own strength is their small g, God. Their own ability, their own honor, their, their, their pride in their ways to go through and conquer is actually causing them to be puffed up and it's a lifestyle that God absolutely detests. And their arrogance here leads to actually a lack of integrity. Not only are they puffed up, they're actually incapable of doing right it's, it continues here with the phrase, they are not uprights, or, upright, or in other words, they are crooked. They are crooked in their ways, incapable of being straight or right. Here God, in verses 4 and verse 5, describes two very contrasting realities. The Babylonians, who are characterized by pride and a lack of integrity, and on the other hand, the righteous, the righteous who will live by faith. An interesting note here in verse 4 is the word soul. The word soul, which uh, in in the Hebrew is the word nefesh, and it carries the idea, this this root uh, word, this root idea of desire or passion. And the practicality here of this word desire is that it has the potential it has the potential to, to be used for good and for evil, right? Desires in and of themselves are not wrong, but the outflowing of them, outflowing of those desires have a clear choice of good or evil, meaning this, that the desire or passions of the Babylonians were explicitly their own choice. They made their own choice, God did not lift the responsibility of life's choices from them. It was still their choice to go in and plunder, to be proud, to be their own strength. That was their choice. And it becomes obvious here in our text that they chose to fulfill their sinful desires. Those desires that went the wrong way, revealing the nature of their hearts. The corrupt character of the Chaldeans here is on full display. I mean, as we, as we read here, as I read that chapter at the very beginning, it's hard to go one or two lines without going, ooh, I can't believe a group of people would do that. It's on full display here, the nature of these people. But what also is on full display is that God promises what? Verse 4, verse 5, the end of it. There, pardon me, verse 3, and end. His judgment on this evil is coming to an end. But what about the righteous? What about the flip side of this coin? The other contrasting reality, the other group of people here that are described by God, 
this here is a complete contrast with the first group described. He says here, the unrighteous will die by their arrogance. How do we know that? Well, because the righteous will live by faith. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 2 says, in a song of celebration of the salvation of Judah, listen to what Isaiah says. He says, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith or remains faithful, they may do what? They may enter in. What Isaiah here is doing is he's equating righteousness with the nation that remains faithful to the Lord. Righteousness with those who keep God's ways. And this is the meaning here in the declaration of verse 4. The righteous will live by their faithfulness. The word faith or emunah in the Hebrew means fidelity or steadfastness. Faith here is the ultimate expression and commitment of trust in God. And the clear message here from these verses is that God provides assurance. What assurance? Well, the assurance that he's promised the end. He's telling Habakkuk and his chosen people, I'm assuring you by my promise, by my very word, it will not lie, it will come to be, and that the righteous will then respond to God's faithful actions as they are then faithful to him. The fulfillment of the promise, the admonition here is to wait expectantly before the Lord's vision, before the Lord's promise, and to live faithfully before Him until it comes. In the meantime, the faithful here will remain true to God against all odds and against all timelines. Here's the result, though. Here's the declaration. Here's the the truth of those who follow this pattern. Those who trust the Lord's promises and remain faithful are then identified, classified, given the title of righteous. And in this way, there remains a wonderful interaction between divine faithfulness, what God has promised to do, and human response. Divine faithfulness and human response. You see, you you can't separate the two. You can't have God being one way and man being a different way and still have an outcome of righteousness. No, as God shows himself to be faithful and as man responds in faithfulness, there is a righteousness as a result. Divine faithfulness provokes a faithful response from those who love God. As God demonstrates his fidelity to justice, his promise of vindication, Yahweh is shown himself to be righteous. And as his followers respond with faithfulness to what Yahweh has told them to do, and what he promises, what he promises that he will do, Yahweh's people, therefore, are shown to be righteous. The righteous will live by faith. Now, the New Testament, perhaps you've heard this phrase, the righteous will live by faith, uh, as you've read the New Testament or as you've heard it taught. And in fact, uh, the New Testament writers quote this verse here in Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, three times. Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 10. And Paul actually uses this idea, this idea of the righteous shall live by faith, as the trademark of his teaching regarding the importance of faith in the doctrine of salvation. 
He takes God's message to Habakkuk and takes it all the way to its final emphasis. He says this, those who are judged to be righteous as a result of their faith will live. Those who are judged to be righteous in God's eye as a result of their faith in Christ have life. God recognizes the faithfulness, the faith of his people, and the result is what? He gives life. God will give Israel life out of his faithfulness to his word. The vision here recorded for us emphasizes and and continues to remind us of the life-giving nature of our God. In a chapter where we see death and judgment and end repeated over and over again, we're then reminded right at the beginning that God, for those who are righteous and are faithful in their ways and live by faith, will be given life. God cares for his people even when he appears distant and uninvolved. As we know from the teachings of Paul and Romans, we know that God, while we were yet sinners, while we still had no desire for anything righteous, sent Christ to die for us. He sends the life-giving Savior to provide eternal life for those who would place faith in Christ. My friends, the righteous will live by faith. In our study here of chapter 2, we're going to shift gears in a fairly dramatic way. Because God goes from providing this wonderful promise that those who walk in an upright way in a faith, faithful manner, will be declared righteous. He transitions in his, in his um, word to Habakkuk to a section of judgment. After presenting the contrasting expressions of those who are righteous and those who are proud in verses 4 and 5, God moves into a section of pronounced woe or judgment. And while the prophet Habakkuk had been given the bad news of impending judgment on Judah regarding the many sins that he had complained about, right? He he had heard in chapter 1, okay, Judah, I'm hearing your complaint. This is what I'm going to do about it. The Babylonians are coming in to take care of my people and, and root out evil and hopefully establish a people who are, again, righteous by faith. But in the midst of this, there will also be a judgment that he's going to hand down to the Babylonians. These judgments are written here in the form of five woe oracles. We find them in verses 6 all the way down to verse 20. Each of these oracles, each of these woes, shares the common theme here of divine judgment on Babylon for all of its deeds. Now, Unfortunately, we don't have the time to extensively cover each one of these woes. I would encourage you to do so, uh, perhaps in your own study. Very helpful here um, to see how God 
would judge these people. So let me briefly summarize each one of you in just a short phrase for each one, hopefully give you an idea. In the first woe article, oracle, pardon me, in verses 6 through verse 8, Babylon, God says, will be plundered by those it had plundered before. The second woe oracle in verses 9 through verse 11 tells of the security, the absolute self-confidence that these Babylonian people had gained for themselves in themselves would be totally would become totally unsecured. It would be chaos. The third here, third oracle, is in verse 12 through verse 14, where he says their civilization. And if you know anything about the Babylonian people and, and, and Babylon itself, it was the pride of that time. It, it, is, it, it housed the great wonders of the world. It was a civilization of a well-organized, proud people. And he says in verses 12 to 14, it will be replaced with what? Absolute devastation. The fourth oracle in verses 15 to verse 17, he tells that their glory, the fame that they had gathered for their name, after plundering and going through and conquering nations, the glory ascribed to the Babylonian name would be actually turned from glory to shame. And then the fifth and final woe comes in verses 18 to verse 20, where the idols, the wooden, the stone images set up by these people would be exposed as worthless in light of the Lord who is the one true God. Now, we see in these woes a complete reversal of fortunes. Right? We can see a similar pattern, actually, of, of, of character and consequence throughout the majority of the Old Testament. A pattern that um, can be understood this way. Right, if, if a person or a group of people demonstrates a life that displays lawlessness, then disaster will overtake them. Generally speaking, because their character has been exposed as wicked and foolish. But on the other hand, if a person or group lives a lifelong pursuit of fidelity to God and to his neighbor, they are then shown to be wise and to fear God And this is the life that God chooses to bless. We see that pattern all throughout the Old Testament. Babylon here is a foolish nation because their character is shown to be prideful, violent, wicked, and idolatrous. And the woe oracles here expose them. It mocks them in their character deficiency. It reveals that this nation will reap what it's sown. It will get a taste of its very own medicine. And so, Habakkuk can be more than assured that God will hold this evil nation accountable for all their sins. God goes to an extreme length here in verses 6 through verse 20 to describe to Habakkuk what he promises to them in verse 2, or promises to him in verse 2 and verse 3. The end is coming. And this is what's going to happen to them. But then in the final verse of this chapter, we transition again from a series of judgment 
and pronouncements of woe on a people, an evil people, where the prophet contrasts the vanity of idols, verses 18 through verse 19, with something totally different, totally better. He contrasts it with the awesome presence of the one true God. And a, uh, what a fitting ending here to the dialogue between God and the prophet. The Lord is not mute, deaf, dumb, or powerless like all other idol gods that Habakkuk would see. He, Yahweh, is enthroned on, in his temple. He is reigning over the universe he created. He is sovereign in all things. God is in control. Even when everything and everyone seems out of control, the whole world, therefore, should be silent in reverence before His holy presence. He's not forsaken His people. His apparent silence should not be mistaken for the abandonment of Judah, but in fact, He will act to fulfill His purpose at the appointed time the time he promised earlier in this chapter. Now, next time when we come together, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, we're going to see in chapter 3, verse 2, we'll be confronted with a powerful reminder of Habakkuk to God, where Habakkuk cries out to God, and he says this little phrase, he says, in wrath, God, in your wrath that, that you just told us about in chapter 2, in that wrath, remember mercy. When he sees all that will unfold in the coming judgment from God, he cries out to God to show mercy. We find the same theme woven multiple times throughout Scripture. The whole story of Scripture, the Bible, is that God's righteous judgment of sin is always accompanied by what? His mercy. We see it in the banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden. When in, when in a desire to be like God, they enter into an unrighteous state, but God doesn't totally abandon them. And they're, they're, when they find out they are exposed before God in their nakedness, what does he do? Does he leave them? No, he goes to them. And in a clear expression of his mercy in the face of their judgment, he clothes them. He covers them. When God pronounces his judgment on the earth and calls all to repent, he raises up his servant Noah to convey a message of repentance and mercy. God will deliver judgment for what the people have done, but with a promise of mercy as well. And we see it also at the cross of Christ where God's wrath is poured out for all of the sinfulness of mankind. And in that very scene is the expression of His merciful love to all those who would place their faith in the suffering Savior. So, we conclude this chapter. And perhaps your mind and your heart are heavy with all the impending judgments we've read about and heard from God Make sure you finish up by noticing verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent 
before him. Or perhaps as my very southern grandmother would say, God is in heaven, so hush now. Hush up, as she would say. I'm not going to, hush was a southern accent. That's literally what is being said here. The Lord is in heaven, let the earth be silent. Then notice in verse 14, if you're tempted to doubt what it's all going to be, that perhaps all that's going on in your life is going to come crashing down, that everything is going to go horribly wrong, notice this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or in other words, all self-made Proud kingdoms will pass away. But God's kingdom will stand and last forever. His glory, like a vast, unmeasurable sea, will cover all. And then the pathway, the pathway of the righteous in verse 4, is a pathway of faith. And on that pathway we come with our complaints, as Habakkuk did, with our laments, our questions, and we seek the Lord and an answer. And yes, at times it's a painful answer because oftentimes it speaks of looming judgment like we've seen here in chapter 2. But in the midst of this judgment, my friends, is also an expression of His mercy, always, which then declares His glory. Listen how Paul summarizes this very thought in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And now catch this. Notice this. He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. My friends, we rejoice in that same certainty. Those who are in Christ will not face this perfect justice from God. This justice, this this laying down of judgment promised to those who are not upright, who are crooked in their ways, who are boastful and proud in and of themselves. We in Christ will not face this justice. Christ faced it for us. And then in the end, the glory and the honor would belong to God and God alone for his wonderful works. So, perhaps we could conclude as God concluded, summarizing the thoughts here, perhaps you could hear God saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, hang on. Hang on. I'm situated quite well on my throne with the most perfect perspective to see all and to work all things together for good. In fact, Habakkuk, you can count on it. You can count on it. One day, my glory, it'll fill the earth. And everyone will know it, and everyone will know what I've done. They won't have any choice but to see me in all my glory That time's coming. So Habakkuk, hang on. I know what I'm doing. And it won't be late. 
It won't come before its appointed time. It will be right on time. And for those of us who have illnesses and heartaches, difficulties beyond description, perhaps things we would like relief from right now, much like the prophet did, God says, hang on, wait. Maybe we don't like this answer, but my friends, this is God's answer. This is his response in his own appointed time, in his perfect sovereign time, he will accomplish all his purposes. When we come back next time, we will see that the prophet's response to God, how he responds to what he's seen in chapter 2, is spot on. He has a glorious response to seeing God and seeing exactly what God would do. He embraces the very call of the righteous. He makes the choice going into chapter 3 to walk by faith, to continue in his faithfulness to God because God's not changed. Because he's faithful, I'm going to walk by faith. So my friends, let us learn from Habakkuk. Let us learn to walk by faith and to hang on, to wait on the Lord. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, you're a God who will not tolerate evil, will not tolerate injustice. It's in direct opposition to your character and who you've told us you are. And unfortunately, Father, we are surrounded by it. And perhaps at times we also cry out, God, will you tolerate this? What are you going to do about it? We come to you, Father, with questions. May our questions be always, be always accompanied by a heart of faith and trust, knowing this, that you have promised an appointed end, an appointed time for all of it to be taken care of. You promise that because you are just, everything will be right. And that in your justice, Father, I praise you that you've extended mercy as well. We're not a people without any hope. We're a people who've been shown great mercy. We've been shown Christ. I pray that even in our illnesses, our sicknesses, our troubles, our pains, our heartaches, we would remember that mercy. We would remember that you've given us Christ and it will be okay we can hang on, we can wait, all will be well, because you promised. You promised so. Give us grace even as we leave this place, as we interact with each other, as we go back to our families, as we go to our workplaces, that we would not lose hope, that we would not faint so easily in the sight of of injustice and pain, but that we would cling to mercy, we would cling to the hope we have in Christ, and we would wait. We would hang on 
until the appointed time, knowing that it will come. We praise you, Father, for who you are and what you will do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.